viable are sustainability targets set by energy companies? Honestly, our targets change all the time. As we're constantly evolving, we're also constantly revisiting and revising our targets, setting even more ambitious ones. I'm Florencia Garrido, and I work at Siemens Energy. See how we are transforming energy at SiemensEnergy.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello and welcome to Naked Reflections. When Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick started to develop their ideas for a blockbuster futuristic space movie in the 1960s, they decided to set it in the year 2001. The date made for a good title and must have seemed far enough in the future to give their imaginations free reign. Memorably, they came up with the idea of a smooth-talking onboard computer, HAL, brilliantly voiced by Douglas Rain which turns against the crew halfway through the mission. Was Howe just being vindictive? Did its limited grasp of the trip's mission mean that it failed to understand that it needed the collaboration of the astronauts to achieve it? Or was Howe just doomed to echo the defensive and self-promoting flaws that characterize human behavior? After all, it is implied, it was people who programmed it. This might seem an odd way to start today's discussion on artificial intelligence, and it's more than 20 years since 2001 was released. But movies have played a big part in our perceptions of these matters. Here's Peter Clark on The Naked Scientist show The Countdown to Artificial Intelligence, talking about, you guessed it, Terminator. There's the kind of sci-fi version of AI, which is the Terminator roaming around, hunting you down, and and some sort of super intelligence controlling everything, um, which really is far off in the future at the moment. I mean, we can see it on the horizon. We we need to prepare, think about it, but it's not something that's immediate. Whereas there is sort of AI that is touching all of our lives every day. So you know, your people have stopped worrying about spam in their emails because there's these machine learning algorithms that people are saying, you know, it's, it's at what level of intelligence do you classify it as intelligent? And so in, in some ways, everyone thinks of AI as being the future. Um, but, but phones that recognize you, things like Alexa 10 years ago, that would con- be considered to be a future intelligence, a sci-fi thing. It's not just Alexa. We have drones in the sky and killer robots on the battlefield. Controlled apparently by the blessed algorithm designed to anticipate our every need. Real dangers. But what of the potential benefits of AI? The blessed algorithm is our theme this week, and I have experts with me to discuss these matters. Dr. Beth Singler, a familiar voice on Naked Reflections and the Naked Scientists, who's a junior research fellow at Homerton College, Cambridge, Beth explores the social, ethical, philosophical and religious implications of advances in artificial intelligence and robotics. Joining her is Hope McGovern, a PhD scholar here at the Wolf Institute. 
Hope is studying how to apply computational techniques to the analysis of scripture and human language in general. Plenty for them to discuss with me, your real, not artificial presenter. Beth, can we really attribute intelligence to machines? Can we talk of machine consciousness? What are the philosophical and ethical implications? Well, I think the first thing to respond to in that question is the terms that we're using and how quickly we move from the suggestion of intelligence to this thing that we call consciousness. For the originators of the concept of artificial intelligence back in the 1950s, they were looking at a much more narrow understanding of intelligence, a simulation of attributes and human ability to solve problems, to uh, formulate and answer theorems, and to even play games like AI is implemented in for things like chess and Go. This didn't take into account all the very embodied elements of human intelligence. And I don't think in that initial conception, they ever really considered that this would lead to something like human consciousness. So the philosophical approach to this question is at first possibly to suggest that we need to think about our terms, how quickly in the public consciousness we move from one thing to another, that as soon as we see something that simulates a very narrow aspect of human intelligence, like playing a game, we very quickly start panicking about artificial consciousness. The ethical question that often comes up is if we did produce something like machine consciousness, how would we treat it? I would add to that question another ethical problem of our tendency to anthropomorphize that even if we didn't actually get to artificial consciousness, we react as though we have already. And we see this already in our interactions with the most simplest of bots on social media. People flirt, argue, tease, troll, uh, very, very simple algorithms that are producing content online and see them as having artificial consciousness. Yeah, Beth, I love that you touched on like the historical developments of AI, because that's something I always find useful to think about as well, because I think we tend to either reduce AI to like these content managing algorithms or blow it up to, you know, kind of Terminator level AI overlord status. But it was originally intended to be holding up a mirror to human intelligence to build this kind of model that would enable us to test how we absorb abstract knowledge and then, you know, test it and make it concrete. And so then I think when we're talking about machine consciousness, the question really becomes, is it possible to build a computational model that can match the level of complexity of the actual human experience. So, I mean, like you said, it's usually like one specific thing that a human can do, playing a game, meeting one objective. But the human experience and human flourishing as a whole is so much larger than that. Um, And I think it takes a pretty materialistic philosophical standpoint in order to say these things are actually intelligence or are not meaningfully different. So someone like Alan Turing, the Turing test is often used as a benchmark of the point at which you can no longer distinguish whether or not it's a machine or a human on the other end. And at least the way that like Turing thought about it was that if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's essentially a duck. It's not really worth thinking about the difference on the back end. Um, but I think that can be a pretty reductivist view. And I think, you know, interesting concepts from theology, like Imago Day, like what really separates humans from animals, humans from machine, I think those really come into play here. I just want to follow up on the Turing test example, which is so commonly cited in public discourse, but really humans fail the Turing test all the time. As I say, with falling for the human-like behaviors of certain user interfaces, people engaging with Alexa or Cortana, or as I say, particular bots online, that actually the Turing test just signifies how much we, we fail to distinguish between machine and human intelligence. And the implications of that? 
I mean, there's certainly ethical implications of the fact that some corporations lean into this ability to hack human emotions to present representations of AI agents that we find sympathetic or pleasing. You know, this can be neutral, but it can also encourage people to see technology as more advanced than it actually already is. Sophia, the Hanson robot, I would provide as an example that has some form of AI technology in it, but also tweets on social media about her feelings and her hopes and her aspirations. And there's a human social media manager behind that. So we have to be very careful that we're not led into, and I love science fiction. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a huge geek, that we're not led into accepting a science fiction account of AI and robots and not seeing the truth and the actual applications and their implications. Does that kind of feed into your work on, um, I know you've done some work on the dangers of treating AI like as gods or as idols? Is that Yeah, it's sort of the next step beyond that. So a representation of AI as having agency it doesn't actually have, but then we also deify AI algorithms more generally to think of them as having super agency over our lives. So it's a metaphor, the language that's being used is metaphorical, but it represents that sense of transcendence that people are feeling when they engage with something that's non-transparent. So for instance, you know, people who use recommendation systems when they go on Spotify and it suggests a particular song at a particular moment. And that's a completely corporate driven algorithm. But the feeling is I've been blessed by the algorithm. Something good has happened to me because the algorithm has made that choice. Absolutely. So we'd have that slippage into theistic language. I'd like to pursue a little bit about the question of language. You've both touched on this and this is particularly relevant to your research, isn't it, Hope? So What do computational techniques reveal to you about religious concepts such as mercy, justice, love? So the use of computational models applied to text is that it kind of gives us another lens through which to analyze the way that humans already use language. And so something as simple as word frequency counts um, in a text tell you something that you wouldn't have just necessarily thought of if you're just reading the text straight through as a story. Um, And so when you get into more kind of sophisticated representations of words, like a very common technique in natural language processing is called word embedding. And that's a technique by which you're kind of assigning a word, a barcode, that will tell you how similar it is to other words with the same semantic content. The barcode, the identifier for dog and puppy will be similar. You would assume that words like mercy and justice are more connected with the deity figure and maybe less connected with human kings or empires or things like that. So it's another lens for us to kind of examine the way that these concepts interact in text in kind of a computational sense. Listening to you, Hope, I slightly worry about our loss of the human connection to words when it's also data driven. I'm old fashioned, but I have a love of manuscripts. You know, maybe it's my biblical studies, whether it's manuscripts in the British Museum or manuscripts in the uh, Geniza archive in the University of Cambridge library. Are these under threat, Beth? I'm asking you really to start with as, as an anthropologist philosopher, or am I simply being hysterical? I wouldn't say hysterical. I think it's interesting that we are finding new ways in which to engage with text, that the digitalization certainly of some of these very precious texts that are very old, they need to be protected, but they also need to be accessible to people. So that's an upside. That doesn't directly relate to AI. But I was thinking about this the other day because I was writing a statement about AI ethics and I was using Grammarly, which has a pretty simple AI system in it, but it does everything up to including suggesting you make changes to your tone. 
So I'm a hybrid writer in that sense, using a co-author, the artificial intelligence, to help shape my my discussion and the way I'm saying things and whether this is in some way unethical to have that sort of help. But also in relation to what you're saying about these amazingly beautiful manuscripts, like are we losing that connection with the process of writing? Are we finding shortcuts through artificial intelligence? There's also systems that will help you write the next few sentences. I don't use those, but they will make suggestions. Or you can just give a topic and it will give you an amount of writing based on a larger corpus from elsewhere. So I'm thinking about you know, the labor of love that goes into producing those manuscripts, are we moving away from that process? Or do we see AI itself as a form of labor of love? I think it's a bit of a Pandora's box situation. If you think about the the loss in oral tradition that came along after writing system would, would be introduced to cultures. So I think something similar might be happening in the future, probably further away than we might think of it. Although things like Grammarly and even text suggestions in Google Documents are kind of nefarious. There's actually some really interesting work at the Cambridge Center for Digital Humanities that talks about automatic writing. I think one title of it is called Ghosts in the Machine. It feels, in a way, another iteration of, of a Turing test, which is that our human authors, when they create a work of art, are they really doing anything else than assimilating knowledge from different places and kind of putting it together in a new way, in a way that a machine, when it's trained on a, on a corpus, on corpora, it's kind of pulling pieces of it to generate narratives. So I think it comes back to the question of when a human sits down to write a story and a machine could write the same story, is there anything different going on in the human creative process? Yeah, we would certainly expect our accounts of theologically inspired and theistically inspired documents to be different in that sense, that certainly that's the presentation that would be given by the writer of a manuscript in that sense. They, they are doing something that's very specific to their faith. I was having a discussion the other day as well about there's a model called Leo Cole. She's both a model and a computer scientist, and she's developed this robo rabbi that takes, again, this corpus of material and can answer questions based on your birth date and make suggestions. And I raised the question, like, is this what a priest or a rabbi is? Do they simply just provide information? And we've got other examples like the Church of England have their Alexa skill that you can download onto your system and ask questions like recite the Lord's Prayer for me or could you say grace? And there seems to be so much more of the human aspect of being a religious figure that is missing, that we're just sort of, again, reducing that experience to the supplement to information that you need at a particular moment. It's interesting to think whether the role of religious leader is changing because, of course, traditionally a rabbi was simply somebody who would make a judgment. He was he or normally it was a he, a teacher, uh, but also would make a legal judgment when there was an argument. And over time, that role of the rabbi has developed. But I wonder whether the AI is making our ministers of religion more like conduits. Are they now conduits to, well, what does the Talmud say? What does the Hadith say? What is church doctrine on a particular issue? Is that what you're seeing, Beth? Certainly these particular examples of the Alexa skill and the robo-rabbi, it is just purely an input-output system. Is that sufficient or could we make the argument that that's more accessible to people in our current state, that we're distanced from that human togetherness? Perhaps this is a good alternative, accessible on a much wider range. It's something for religious leaders to think about as well, but I'm looking at it more as an anthropologist. I think one thing through the pandemic that we've seen is that a lot of these transitioning from in-person gatherings of faith communities moving to virtual, they're missing something. Most of what religious leaders do cannot be outsourced. And I also think it's hard to disambiguate between 
like you were saying, judgment and also pastoral care, because they're kind of entwined into one, at least like in Christian theology, you talk about like exegesis and hermeneutic, right? I guess this is to say just the idea that like ethics need to be embodied. And one side of that is judgment. The other side of that is just the day-to-day life of living out a moral ethic within a religious context. This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler. My guests are Beth Singler and Hope McGovern. Our subject, the rapid developments in the field of artificial intelligence and the blessed algorithm. AI can be designed to perform very limited tasks or it can be more general in its ambition, if that's the right word. But there's the third category. Here's Simon Beard on The Naked Scientist show The Countdown to Artificial Intelligence. Superintelligence is by definition general artificial intelligence, but it's general artificial intelligence that is better than humans. That is, its problem-solving capabilities are better. Its ability to coordinate between different intelligences is better. Its creativity is better. And it's when you get to superintelligence that you then get these risks of, well, if it can do better than we can, and it decides to do anything that might not be in our interest, not necessarily for any malice whatsoever, it may well be doing exactly what we told it to do, but we still might not be able to adapt or to respond effectively. And we might find ourselves on the losing end of a really big problem that we are not able to solve. Is an example of super intelligence so perfectly honed to produce paper clips that would kill people to improve its efficiency? So this is based on Nick Bostrom's thought experiment about an AI system that is set with a task but has none of what we would colloquially call human common sense. So it just simply maximizes for what it's been told to produce. And then as the thought experiment goes on, that this would lead to the ultimate destruction of all matter in the universe because it would turn all things into paperclips. I've seen a few people describe this as a glitch, which is inaccurate because this is Nick Bostrom arguing this is an AI working optimally with a very simple command But having none of that sense that we have, if if someone asked me to produce or to supply paper clips, I might ask, you know, how many do you want? Or I might just bring a few. I might make some assumptions about what is a reasonable amount of paper clips for a human being for any particular task. And this is just merely to make the point that there are certain embedded values that we have as humans under that umbrella term of common sense that we get from interacting with each other, learning very simple things of people don't want hundreds of thousands of paperclips. They don't want the universe turned into paperclips. So it's about stating that distinction between the form of maximized intelligence or superintelligence that he's describing and human common embodied intelligence. It's not necessarily hysterical to worry about that because any system implemented with a goal or a task, but without that kind of embedded sense of intelligence could go ahead and do something we're not expecting. It's just that he's chosen quite a hyperbolic example to be impactful in his account of what superintelligence is. So people worry about paperclips, but it could be many other things. And I guess even within that example, there's kind of an invisible political or regulatory structure that's there that has allowed it to continue operating under these conditions and without having uh, safeguards in place. So often I think about like the the most powerful AIs or the ones that are maybe doing the most damage or maybe doing the most good don't have to be those that are the most super intelligent, the most like Terminator level, but they're just the ones that are being applied in a way that that might be unregulated or, or, you know, have been put to use by humans for a specific task. There's a really fascinating computer game. It's actually quite a simple computer game. You just click and make choices called Universal Paperclips based on this thought experiment. And what's really interesting about that, which I think emphasizes your point, is that you as the human playing the computer game 
start to adopt the values of the system, which is all about maximizing. So you you increase the number of paper clips you can make per day, and then you, you produce other technologies that increase the paper clips until you get up to a, such an extravagantly huge number of paper clips that you basically destroy the universe. But along that route, you make choices that are all driven by at least a neoliberal or a capitalist mindset, but then ultimately a very destructive mindset. And the kinds of examples of AI that we should be concerned about that this highlights are embedded in those systems, embedded in our choices, as you say. So what is the regulation? Is there any? It's a complicated, ever-changing situation. There's various different states and collectives of states that are working towards regulatory frameworks. So the EU very recently had their proposal for a regulation laying down harmonized rules on AI back in, I think, November of 2021. And this is their step forward towards having an EU-wide framework for AI use. In the UK, we have the British AI Council and they're developing an AI roadmap, which makes both recommendations of what we should be doing but also what we shouldn't be doing. In the US, there's no current federal regulation, but they do provide advice for companies suggesting that they should produce AI that emphasizes, I'm reading this out, truth, fairness and equity. So these are positive values that they want to encourage businesses to have when they implement AI. But there is still the existing regulation for technologies that can be applied to AI. It's just that a lot of the time AI is presented as something so dramatically new that it's almost that we need to restart our frameworks. And that's not necessarily the case we have with EU and GDPR and other intellectual regulations that we actually have ways of doing this already. In the research community, I think there's a growing awareness of how AI ethics will become a growing field in the next decade or so. And also just an an emphasis on kind of explainable artificial intelligence, because one of the remaining problems is that it's very hard to understand why a machine makes the prediction that it does. And so making explainable systems um, to ensure or to be able to probe the biases in the training data that the machine is trained on so that it's not replicating the same human biases at inference time. Um, Things like this are also all like very necessary and good safeguards to have when you're going to try to implement AI in any kind of practical setting. And there have been so many examples of that having been done poorly, where AIs just replicate human biases, and, and that's not understood at the time you're putting it into production. And then real life people suffer for the consequences. Could you give us some examples, Hope, of those, I was about to say institutional acts of racism, but maybe it's sort of artificial intelligent acts of racism? Yeah, there are a lot of them. So racism and sexism tend to be the biases that are encoded often. So there are actually experiments that show that bias or machines trained on human data replicate every known human social bias. A classic example is when Google Photos first came out with its photo tagging feature. And because there simply weren't enough people of color or black people in the training data, it wasn't able to recognize black people nearly as confidently as white people. It often suggested the tag gorilla. And so they actually couldn't fix it from the back end point of view. So they just removed the tag gorilla from their classification algorithm uh, for the time being. I believe that's fixed now. Oftentimes you'll, you'll hear about racial prejudices showing up in like sentencing algorithms where you're suggesting what bail to post for people who are awaiting trial, things like that. Oh, there was a, a great example in, I think it was China. Some lab in China tried to build an algorithm that would predict whether or not a person was a criminal. Um, and they simply didn't pay attention to the images they were feeding in. And it basically was learning that if a person was wearing a suit, they were more likely not to be a criminal. And if they weren't wearing a suit, they were likely to be a criminal because they were basically using a mix of mug shots as well as like LinkedIn business photos. So just kind of these poor examples of you're really not thinking about the input data. You're not thinking about how 
even the data that you feed to a model is encoded in human biases that exist already. And so this really goes back to the idea that AI is just a model of human intelligence insofar as it's useful to think of it that way, that it's not going to be this kind of superior being that can just eliminate all biases. So in a way, it's kind of replicating human frailty. But a contrast to that is how it can diminish our sense of threat from AI. And I want to go back to that a little bit because, yes, it's partly because of it's unexplainable for those of us who aren't in the field. It's very hard to understand. And of course, something you don't understand, you can be fearful of. So, Beth, as a, an anthropologist, how do you think those of us who know so very little can be less fearful of AI? Donald Rumsfeld came under a lot of criticism for his unknown unknown speech, but actually we have to throw into the mix the fact for some people AI isn't even on their horizon of concerns. So yeah, you've got people who perhaps have only learned about artificial intelligence and robotics from particular images in the press, which often are over the top because they want to get attention for a particular story, even if the advance in artificial intelligence that they're talking about is incremental and quite small, they might illustrate it with Terminator imagery. So you've got to deal with the public conception of AI. Uh, it requires education. We we don't have a syllabus currently throughout all schools, certainly in the UK, that deals with artificial intelligence. We have syllabi that talk about the digital realm, that talk about the dangers and hazards of engaging with strangers online and so forth. But we don't have something that explains what an algorithm is, what it's implemented in, how it might directly affect your life if you're, as the examples Hope gave, expertly represents, but also just in simpler things like going for a mortgage or having a medical diagnosis, how might this impact your life? So I'm aware of some schools that start off by talking about stories about robots for primary school children, and that enthuses them and they're excited. But we also need that education at a further level. We also need really representative stories that don't go pushing hard into the hype of what AI is and what it's going to do and how you know the apocalyptic scenario is just around the corner. Well, we also need our leadership not to talk about in the case of Boris Johnson at the UN, pink-eyed terminators. You know, he made this very standard style Boris speech about this huge dichotomy between either terminators are going to come and get us or the robots will be looking after us in our nursing home and he didn't talk about the complexities. I mean it's yeah you know, it wasn't really any of the depth you might hope for. So we need AI literacy, both from school, but also wider public education. We need these ethical conversations by those who are ethicists and also experts in the field. We need leadership. And I suppose most of all, I think we need some sense of transparency because the transparency unveils a lot of the fear of the unknown. One of the areas that we talk about with AI a lot and with algorithms is, of course, the, the social media. And one of the motivations with so many people on social media and organizations is to increase clicks. And you increase clicks through generating and fomenting controversy. Now, are the big platforms beginning to, how are they beginning to handle that? Because I think there is some recognition. The latest controversy is Spotify, but all the major players, Facebook and Twitter, have had to deal with the ethical questions. Actually, my initial thought was really that, although there's a lot to say about maybe how uh, companies can regulate themselves better or maybe get a long-term better result by optimizing for different metrics, maybe like human flourishing rather than immediate payoff, instant gratification of these serotonin bursts. But what also just comes to mind is that those aren't the only player in the interaction that I, I think 
broader education. And I also think this is the value of faith that it tells you that the influences that you're listening to, or rather that if you're not aware of which factors are influencing you, then you're kind of like a sheep being led astray in, in all these different ways. Um, and so if you're not aware of how your Spotify algorithm is, is shaping you or how your Facebook feed is only showing you these very fomenting, very aggravating things, then of course, you're very much willing to fall into that idea and kind of go down that rabbit hole. But humans also have agency in that situation too, to remove themselves. And I think that's a lot easier if you understand that these algorithms are not designed for your benefit. I would say that there's a lot to be done on the human side as well, and that they're not simply robots without agency actually are able to participate in that interaction. I would second that. I think it's very important to remember the humans in the loop, both in the audience for particular videos and in the decisions that put particular weights on the algorithms that produce clicks. So the, the emphasis on some social media platforms and YouTube is that the most extreme stories obviously get the more attention, so they're highlighted. So what is defined as extreme, what is defined as fringe comes also from the human interaction. As Hope said, it's absolutely important that we have clarity on why these things are being shown to us and deciding whether we want to see them or not. I have agency. And I reluctantly have to bring this podcast to a close. You've been listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests, Hope McGovern and Beth Singler. My thanks to them and to you for listening. There's plenty more where this came from. Take a look at our archive of dialogues with topics as varied as paganism and peace. And you can hear all about those killer robots I mentioned earlier. Feel free to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at The Naked Scientists. And there's plenty more to come too. I'll be back next week with bracing discussion and some new guests. The energy system has to be carbon neutral. Honestly, that doesn't happen at the flip of a switch. It's about changing the whole system. Being carbon neutral in our operations by 2030 is just one part of that. I'm Nakul Prasad and I work at Siemens Energy. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.